You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.aynrand.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a, another episode of New Ideal Live. New Ideal Live is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, which is the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. On this program, we discuss uh, complex issues and events uh, that are shaping our world today from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Objectivism is a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. You can learn more about our publication by going to newideal.einrand.org. Uh, my name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow instru- and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm shortly going to be uh, joined by my colleague, uh, also from ARI, Ilan Giorno. The topic that we're going to be discussing today is how to think about coronavirus conspiracism. And uh, let me go ahead and uh, bring Elon on. And I'll say a few more things then about why we're going to talk about this topic. Hi, Elon. Hey, Ben. So I mentioned at the top that objectivism is a philosophy that upholds, among other ideals, reason. Uh, This is actually the value that is central to Ayn Rand's philosophy. Uh, she uh, said that uh, it, was, it was one of the central concepts in her philosophy. And uh, in this respect, she, uh, she was a noted critic of various forms and strains of irrationalism uh, throughout our culture, whether those include uh, religion uh, or relativism. Today, it would be postmodernism. Uh, but what the phenomenon is called a conspiracy theory. There are many so-called conspiracy theories are, I think, an especially crude expression expression of irrationalism and one uh, that a philosophy of reason especially needs to combat. So part of the reason we're talking about this topic of uh, so-called conspiracy theories today is uh, to understand why they're a form of irrationalism and why a philosophy of reason needs to oppose them. You may have noted, by the way, that I've been saying so-called conspiracy theories. The reason I do that, I don't like that phrase because uh, it gives them too much credit. Uh, Forms of irrationalism, forms of crackpot speculation are not theories. A theory is an important scientific achievement. And so uh, that's part of the reason why we've called the episode today, how to think about coronavirus conspiracism. There's a kind of conspiratorial thinking uh, that we're going to analyze here that is this example of irrationalism. So uh, this is a topic that I've thought and written a fair amount about. It's, it's a topic that's uh, been with us in the news, especially for the last four years. But since the beginning of the pandemic, we've, there's really been uh, a, a conspiracy theorists, so-called, have been having a, a field day uh, with, with, this, with the claims, various claims, one way or another, about the nature the cause, uh, the response to this coronavirus pandemic. We've heard it said that it's being spread by 5G cell phone towers, that uh, the, the, on the other hand, that the threat of it is itself some kind of hoax. 
or that it's a bioweapon that's been engineered by some foreign power, uh, or that it's been foisted on us in some way by our own government. And one particularly noteworthy example of this last claim has gone viral recently. And you may have heard of, the, of this video with uh, someone named Dr. Judy Mikovits. Uh, it's a video that you can find if you look hard enough for it, uh, called Plandemic. Uh, Mikovits is a biochemist who did research on HIV back in the 80s. She was then discredited for some basically irre irreproducible research on chronic fatigue syndrome that she did in 2011. In April, she released a book about her life story. Uh, and uh, very recently in May, she there was then a clip released uh, from a forthcoming documentary called Plandemic. Uh, this made the news in part because YouTube and other social media platforms started taking it down. The basic allegation of the clip, it was about a 25 minute clip, is that uh, some combination of uh, Dr. Fauci, Bill Gates and others have conspired uh, to get us sick uh, in order to push unnecessary vaccinations. Now, there have been a number of different factual claims in this video that have been debunked by some of the uh, regular uh, fact-checking websites. So if you go to PolitiFact on May 7th, uh, if you go to Science Magazine on May 8th, uh, there's a particularly noteworthy takedown on a website called sciencebasedmedicine.org on May 8th. Uh, you can see how some of the, the, the narrower factual claims in this, in this video have been debunked. But what a number of these debunkers have had less to say about uh, is about the, the central claim of this video, which has been a claim made by other sources as well, that there's some kind of general conspiracy about uh, concerning, this, concerning this pandemic. Uh, the, the, the debunkers mostly focused on legal issues in her past, uh, her claim that she's not anti-vaccine. But what we want to do today is to focus on the broader claim, the very idea that there's some kind of conspiracy uh, behind the scenes to uh, foist this virus on us, uh, to vaccinate us in a detrimental way or what have you. And I wanna emphasize that the reason that I think it's worth doing this is not because the claims in this video uh, are uh, so uh, uh, influential and so important that they have to be debunked. In fact, one of the things I'm going to suggest is that they can't be, and that's part of the problem. Uh, what I wanna emphasize is that it's a really good example of what's wrong with uh, conspiracist thinking. And so there's, it's a good opportunity to understand the particular style of thinking that's involved in these so-called conspiracy theories, what's wrong with the style of thinking, and why it's important to try to resist this kind of thinking in one's own daily practice. I don't, did you want to add anything to that, Elon? Just one quick thing to build on what you're saying. Uh, part of what I think we want to share with people is that it's important to understand it, the characteristics, and and but also we want to offer some some suggestions for how to think about conspiracy uh, thinking when you encounter it, whether you find yourself pulled in a certain direction or whether you're encountering people or friends or family who are pushing this to you. I know one of the questions people have had in the last few uh, 
couple of weeks is what do I say to people who share this video with me? I, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, what do you do? And I think part of the, the value of objectivism as a philosophy is that it, it gives you guidance both in how to live your life, but also fundamentally how to think. And this is a, uh, an area where objectivism's theory of knowledge has a lot to offer in terms of guiding us in, in sort of untangling a lot of these confusions and, and not just confusions, because as we'll see, there's, there's more going on here. But uh, to me, it's objectivism sort of shines a bright light on how to sort of navigate your way uh, in this, uh, in, in the face of these sorts of uh, claims. And there were some people in the chat wondering if I could post the links to the various debunking websites. I did, I did that for those of you who are in Zoom. So the first major point that I want to stress about this, uh, about the claims in this video is that the central claims about some kind of conspiracy, uh, characteristic of a lot of conspiracism, are simply asserted brazenly without the presentation of any kind of supporting evidence. And to connect to what Elon was just saying about why this is important in objectivism, uh, objectivism holds reasons are only means of knowledge. And reason is based on sensory evidence of the world. And so that means that when claims are asserted without evidence, they're asserted without any ostensible connection to reality. And it amounts to a defiance of reason. And I think that's particularly evident in a number of aspects of this pandemic video, uh, which I mean, it's true about lots of conspiracism, but it's easy to illustrate in this case. And that's part of the reason why we're looking at it. So just for example, uh, Mikevitz says at one point that uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, she's setting some background for why she thinks there's a conspiracy right now. And she tells part of her own life story back in the 1980s. She says uh, she was working on AIDS research. And Dr. Fauci, for one reason or another, held up publication uh, of uh, one of her papers related to AIDS research. Now, this is the, this is the only, this is something I, I assume that we can uh, take her word for, that, that, that she interacted with him at some point in the 80s. So there's some evidence there of something, but is it evidence of a conspiracy? Uh, she infers from the fact that Fauci held up a publication of her paper that he and others did this because they wanted to take credit for her research and in order to make money on some kind of unspecified patents, and that the result was that a lot of people then died uh, from the AIDS virus. And she infers further from that that this is some kind of evidence for the claim that there's some kind of conspiracy today by Fauci on behalf of him and unspecified others with unspecified patents uh, that they will then profit from. And that's why they are somehow foisting this coronavirus uh, pandemic as some kind of hoax on us. But even if we accept her story about Fauci in the 80s, and if you look at those debunking sites that I posted in the Zoom chat, you'll see that there are even many problems with the, the, the basic factual claims that she's making there. The timeline of her story just doesn't line up with where, where various people were in the world at the time. Even if we accept her story, it, uh, it's not evidence of any kind of conspiracy then or now. She mentions unspecified patents. She doesn't tell us what these patents were for, how they would in any way uh, relate to her paper being held up for publication. Uh, it doesn't explain how holding the paper from publication would help him profit. Uh, and 
most importantly, no explanation or clarification or indication of any kind is given for what any of this has anything at all to do with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, what any of it has to do with a way of uh, key players profiting from uh, vaccines for the coronavirus. And that's especially because of the fact that these vaccines do not exist yet. Uh, and so how can the people who are allegedly the ones to profit, profit if they don't actually have patents on any existing uh, vaccinations? What real evidence would look like would be something like you give documents, uh, documentation where somebody announces their intention. Now that's not usually something that you can find very easily when it exists, but sometimes it can be dug up. You find money that the person's actually getting from an actual vaccine that they've, uh, that they've foisted on us, but then you also have to give evidence that it's an unnecessary vaccine, that it, that it doesn't solve the problem that it's intended to solve. Uh, none of this is presented in the video. Uh, to give at least just one more example of one of the key claims from the video that's presented without evidence. And there's others that I won't go into. Uh, she repeats a claim that's been circulated widely uh, on social media among uh, certain people who are skeptical about, about this pandemic, that the virus had to have been manipulated somehow. Uh, her basic reason for thinking this is because she doesn't think that the virus could be transmitted from bats who are known to have a predecessor version of this virus to human beings. She thinks that it would only, uh, this would only be possible given 800 years of evolution. And she infers from this that it must have been manipulated in a lab. And she even mentions specific labs where it must have happened. But that again is a, is a, is a, complete leap in logic. There's no evidence given of actual manipulation here. She doesn't explain why she thinks it would take 800 years for the, uh, for the virus to so evolve. There are plenty of scientists who say it wouldn't uh, uh, take that long. Or why for it to happen, it would have to go straight from bats to human beings. There's intermediate steps. And I'm obviously not an immunologist or a virologist, but I mean, we do know just from a common sense perspective, there are plenty of other epidemics and pandemics that have come from animals. Uh, HIV and, and, and Ebola are two examples of this. So she's not explaining why there's anything special uh, about this virus in this regard. And I mean, sometimes viruses are special, but then she would need to explain that. And she's not giving the reader the kind of clarity that uh, they would need. She's making an extraordinary claim and not giving the kind of extraordinary evidence that would be needed to back up that claim. Uh, of course, there has been interesting discussion about a, a lab in Wuhan, which is uh, coincidentally close to where the uh, outbreak of the virus has happened. And they were working on some kind of coronavirus research. And I, there have been, I think, credible questions raised about whether it might have leaked uh, from that lab. But that is itself still not evidence of any kind of conspiracy, which, which presupposes an intent to release it to accomplish something nefarious. Uh, generally, though, I think the tactic she uses here is a, is a common tactic of conspiracism. It's called the argument from ignorance. It works by saying, we don't understand how some event has occurred. Therefore, we know 
that it occurred by a conspiracy. But that inference simply doesn't work. When you don't understand the cause of some effect, all that tells you is that you don't understand it. It doesn't then establish what one particular cause must have been. Real evidence for establishing the existence of some kind of conspiracy or ill intent would again be uh, documentation of plans uh, for manipulation, examples of other manipulated viruses, uh, if there are any out there, and how uh, this virus resembles those viruses and, how, and, and arguments for why it could only have happened this way. But again, uh, this, this video doesn't give any of that explanation or evidence. And there's other uh, claims in the, in the video that are off, also offered without evidence, but uh, in the interest of time, I'll, uh, I'll skip over those. And if people want to ask me about more of them, they can do that. I just want to chime in with one perspective on this. When you, and I, I read the transcript of this, I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but it's verbatim. One thing that's a, that's a giveaway that there's something really fishy, at least, that should raise red flags for anyone consuming this is that although she has a PhD in a field that's relevant to this topic, and although she claims to be in a position to have crossed paths with certain people, if you consider the claims that you've just summarized, Ben, she is, she, she is not in any sort of, she's not established that she's in any position to have ever gotten the kind of evidence that would be relevant to thinking about what's happened at the origin. Has she been in Wuhan? Has she observed people? you're manipulating it does she know does she have evidence for anything like that would she, was she in any sort of position to know about what people's intentions were with so there's this whole question of how would anyone get evidence for any of these claims that is actually supportive of the claims and she's not she has not given even a suggestion that she would be in a position to have that kind of evidence let alone that she has it so and and, and when you read the transcript or watch the video um, what you get is they lean very strongly on her credentials as number one, she has a PhD in, in this field and she's published biochemistry. One of the, biochemistry, which is not quite as direct as it might seem. And so one, she has the, the, sort of this credential, um, but then it's, they really overstate her, her standing. Like she, she's supposedly this blockbuster uh, scientist. And, and in fact, if you look at citations and things like that, that, that doesn't, it's not supported she was obscure. She's working in some lab. And then the other thing that's relevant here. So, so notice when someone's making these claims and leaning on their expertise, as opposed to giving you evidence that someone who is an expert would be in a position to do when you're leaning on expertise, there's this element of sort of an argument from I'm an authority. You have to listen to me. I, I would know things you don't know. Well, the answer to that is tell me, you know, show me the evidence, not show me your credentials. Yeah, that's really important. And, and experts who know their subject well, who respect the minds of their readers and their listeners, may be aware of the fact, well, look, some, sometimes we know things that are difficult to explain in a short amount of time. But when they, when they realize that, they'll say that. They'll say, you know, don't take my word for it. Look to this source. Or here's something, the evidence I can't summarize for this very quickly, but here's an indication of it. Or if you want to find more, read this source. They, they won't just make brazen assertions, uh, as you suggest, kind of on the weight of their authority and nothing else. So uh, a second point that I wanted to bring out about uh, this video is especially because of the fact that it's being asserted so, so many of these key claims about an alleged conspiracy are being asserted without any kind of evidence. 
the claim that's actually being asserted, the so-called theory that's being proffered, is a theory that has no real content, that has no real identity, it has no real coherence. It's not even really clear what's being claimed. And this is exactly what you would expect when it's not moored in evidence in the first place. When a theory is based on evidence, that makes it testable, that you can figure out what's being claimed and you know uh, the nature of what's being claimed by the facts that are being pointed to in support of it. But if you look at the different things that she says in this relatively short video, you, you'll start to see there are all these incoherencies and contradictions, which is what you would expect to follow from something that's basically being asserted because of somebody's imagination in the first place. So for example, and, and I'll give maybe two or three examples of, of these inconsistencies. What exactly is the conspiracy that she's claiming trying to do? Are they trying to vaccinate everybody or not? Because at one point in the video early on, she quotes Bill Gates, who says normalcy only returns when we've largely vaccinated the entire global population. The interviewer then says, well, if we activate mandatory vaccines globally, I imagine these people stand to make hundreds of billions of dollars. And Mikeovitz says, yes, they wouldn't, they'd kill people. But then later in the same interview, in fact, very shortly after, she says, the game is to prevent the therapies till everyone is infected and push the vaccines, knowing that the flu vaccines increase the odds by 36% of getting COVID. So is the claim that they want to vaccinate everybody or is the claim that they want everybody to get sick? But of course, if everybody gets sick, the vaccines uh, won't do any good. The, the whole idea of a vaccine is to stop people from getting sick in the first place. Uh, unless she just thinks that the vaccines don't work, which then really brings out that she's an anti-vaxxer, which has been in question. Uh, or here's another example, the same kind of thing. Is she claiming that this virus is the result of some kind of manipulation in a lab? Or is she really hanging on the anti-vaccination line and saying, no, it's just that we've been made more susceptible to this natural virus because of previous vaccines? Because at one point she says that as well. Uh, she says, in, she cites a publication where she claims uh, the military, uh, military members who'd been vaccinated with influenza were more susceptible to coronaviruses. Uh, she says coronaviruses are in every animal. So if you've never, if you've ever had a flu vaccine, you were injected with coronaviruses. Now, uh, I should mention that the, the research she cites here, the relevance of it has been debunked by a number of authoritative commentators. They say, well, the coronaviruses that people uh, were slightly at a higher risk of getting in certain cases uh, when they'd been vaccinated for the flu are not the same coronaviruses that we're talking about today. We're not, today we have a novel coronavirus. All kinds of colds are coronaviruses. So this evidence was irrelevant to the present situation in the first place. It's also not true that the vaccines themselves contain coronaviruses, but even just leaving those factual inaccuracies aside, what's the claim here? Is the claim that the novel coronavirus has been engineered so that we will all get it? Or is the problem with the flu vaccines that made us susceptible to a natural virus? It's, the claim is not consistent. And just one last example. Uh, 
on one hand, she's, she's suggesting that there's some kind of a conspiracy to get everybody sick with the coronavirus, whether through uh, engineered strain or through prior vaccines. Uh, but then in a whole separate thread of thought, she talks about how there's a conspiracy to overcount cases of the coronavirus. Uh, and I mean, there have been interesting questions, I think, raised about what the criteria are for doing that. Uh, I think there's also good questions uh, that have been raised about whether it's being undercounted in certain respects. But leaving that aside, the claim that she's making here is still not consistent. Is it that uh, the conspiracy is to get everybody sick with this? Or is the claim that the conspiracy is to lie, that there's even a virus to get sick with? There's just no consistency here. And it's because she's basically pulling a la carte claims from uh, all across the spectrum of thought, uh, among other conspiracists about this. Uh, and there's no, there's nothing coherent. It's not adding up. And that's because it's not coming from evidence and reality on her own part is, is the way that I understand this. Um, Elon, did you want to say more at that point? No, I think it might be helpful just to put this sort of in the wider framework. So thinking so philosophically how to classify this sort of thing, because I think your point from the beginning is really worth amplifying that to call this a theory, a conspiracy theory as an overstatement is too charitable. A theory is whether it's in science or in philosophy or in some other field, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a significant attempt to use whatever evidence already exists to try to develop an explanation or an account of some phenomena in the world. And that means you've taken, you've, you've done some work. You've actually marshaled some evidence. You try to find the logical and causal relationships or you, you're hypothesizing some of those and you're going to test them. And that's part of what sort of theories in development. That's part of what happens. So the, the essential of a theory is that you, you have already done some work to relate the facts to some account, and that's your attempt to explain something in the world. And I think, as you put it earlier, to call this a theory, it, it's just not even remotely close to that. This is something else. It's as a phenomenon. It's, it, it doesn't deserve that classification. I think conspiracism is a much better tag for it. So why don't we unpack that a little bit? What do you, how do you think of this kind of claim? Because it... I don't, I mean, you've, you've really underlined how, and I think convincingly underlined that this isn't built on evidence. So how do you treat this? How do you, how do you navigate this kind of issue? Yeah, the, the issue here that you see with a lot of conspiracism uh, is the way that objectivist epistemology classifies this. And someone in the chat, uh, Mary Aline asked a question about this. Objectivism calls this the arbitrary. It's an arbitrary claim. Arbitrary claim is a claim that's asserted brazenly in defiance of the need for evidence. And, and as a result, no claim is really being made. There's nothing here that's either true or false. Uh, people who assert such claims not caring about the evidence, because they're doing this, you can't really even pin down what it is they're saying. So you might take uh, the verbal form of something they're saying and offer evidence to to contradict it, but once you do that, they'll just uh, shape shift and revise the nature of the claim that they're making, or they'll change the subject. Uh, this happens all the time with conspiracism. Uh, 
you can, for example, point to the fact that there's no evidence for a certain claim, and then they'll say, well, that's just part of the cover-up. This, this just shows that the, that the conspiracy exists because they're, they're covering up all the evidence. And of course, when that happens, the nature of the conspiracy being asserted gets bigger and bigger because it now it has to include all the people who are involved in the cover-up, uh, and uh, it's impossible to refute it. Now, I mean, normally, you might take that as something that sounds good. You can't refute it. But here, the problem is you can't refute it because there's nothing there to refute. There's no claim with any actual cognitive content uh, to be refuted. And you shouldn't try to refute it. Uh, it's interesting. I, I found an article uh, where uh, a journalist actually reached out to uh, the interviewer who, were, who was involved in this documentary. And the, the journalist's name is Marshall Allen. He asked the filmmaker about some of the allegations that were being made in this claim, in this, in this documentary, asked for some of the evidence, and again, tried to pin him down on exactly what was being said. And I think that what the journalist, or rather what the, the filmmaker said in response to the journalist was revealing. So the journalist asked, are you saying that powerful people planned the pandemic and made it happen so they could get rich by making everyone get vaccines? And the filmmaker responded, we're in the exploratory phase. I don't know to be clear if it's an intentional or naturally occurring situation. I have no idea. Uh, he then went on to say that the pandemic is being politicized and used to take away our civil liberties and leverage other political policies. He says certain forces have latched onto the situation. It's too fishy. I mean, you, I think from that, you really get a sense that he doesn't have any idea what claim is being made by Mikeovitz. Uh, and he, that's a problem. And that's a sign that what you're dealing with is the arbitrary. When, some, when people are making arbitrary claims with no evidence, there's no claim to be refuted. You shouldn't bother trying. What you should do is dismiss it. Now, of course, we're spending some time talking about this particular claim. Uh, but it, we're not trying to refute it. What we're trying to show is what makes it arbitrary, what makes it such that it doesn't have a basis to give it any content to make it refutable, to explain why it's worthless to try to bother uh, to refute these things, why you should just dismiss this. Now, of course, there are people who hear these claims, and they can be honestly confused about what's going on. And I think that, you know, when you're dealing with somebody honest, somebody who cares about the truth, but maybe just doesn't understand the nature of what's going on, it can be a good thing to engage in certain kinds of refutations and responses. So when there are isolated factual claims that are being made, which can be debunked, it can be a good thing to do that. I think that's what some of the factual debunking sites have done. Uh, and this can then help you show, well, look, if the, if the author or the, the conspiracist in this case uh, is getting so many of these claims wrong. This can give you evidence that they really don't care about the truth. And then that can, you know, help you to reevaluate a number of the other things that they say. You can ask the honestly confused person why they believe or even take as plausible some of the claims that are being asserted without evidence and ask them, well, did you notice, was there any evidence for that claim presented? And once you've done that, you can, you can help people understand that these claims really arbitrary and why they simply should be dismissed from consideration. Uh, I think in real, in certain rare cases, you might want to, uh, uh, what, what we call sometimes give a charity refutation 
and uh, take a certain uh, statement that somebody's made and say, well, ma imagine that what they mean by this is the following. If, if that's what they mean, here are facts that can refute it. But that's something you'll only do for somebody who's on the premise to begin with that facts matter. Uh, you can't really say anything to the purveyors of, the, of these conspiracy claims because they're purveyors of the arbitrary and they, they don't really care about what's true. They're, they're snatching at whatever they can uh, to you know, engage in certain kind of defensive uh, uh, thinking styles. Just to add to another aspect to what you're raising here, uh, one of our colleagues, Ankar Gatte, when he teaches on this subject in, at the Institute's distance learning program, the Objectivist Academics Center, one of the ways he's discussed the arbitrary, I found very helpful. Uh, I think he's characterized the arbitrary to claims to knowledge that are arbitrary as seeking the unearned. It's seeking unearned status as knowledge. And it's, it, I think it's powerful to think of it that way because it, it's a reminder of what the positive is and how the, the contrast stands, it should stand in your mind. The positive is if you're making some claim, there has to be reasons for it. There has to be evidence. You have to be concerned with what's true and what's false. And even a false claim is a step up from the arbitrary because it's, it's an attempt, assuming sincerity, it's an attempt to engage with the world and explain it and understand it. Okay, there's an error or there's a misunderstanding or something goes wrong, but it's at least sort of oriented in the, in, in the direction of trying to create knowledge and achieve knowledge. The arbitrary, by contrast, is really seeking the unearned. It's seeking unearned conviction in your mind, unearned status, unearned standing in your mind, without having done the work to establish its truth and without having done the work that you would need to accept it. Like you, you have to think about what claims you accept and don't. So it's, there's, there's a sense in which it's um, sort of a, a cognitive parallel to seeking the unearned in, in, so in material goods. People, we recognize it's wrong for someone to take the unearned. Like if you steal someone's property, if you, you steal their, their, their car, you break into their house or you mug them or something, we all recognize that that's wrong, right? Because it's, it's not yours to take, it's unearned. There is the parallel then with ideas and knowledge that you, what they're trying to do is to get you to swallow something. Well, they've, I mean, it starts with them really. It's, they've accepted something that haven't done the work to establish. It's not, doesn't stand in their mind as knowledge and it shouldn't in yours. It's un, it has no, it doesn't deserve that standing. And that's another perspective on why it, it's not, the default shouldn't be, oh yeah, I get that. I should now start to refute it. No, the default is this doesn't merit any consideration. This deserves to be shunned, marginalized, um, even denounced in, in some cases, because there are certain conspiracy theories that are actually harmful. They translate into the real world and they, and they activate people who are already looking for affirmation of certain things. And they activate those people and sometimes they can incite them to do really terrible things. It's not, the, you know, one of my concerns about this uh, uh, pandemic uh, cluster of claims, and, and I think it's part of a wider conspiracy type thinking that we're seeing in response to the pandemic. The concern I have is that it's going to uh, really um, pull more people into the, into the camp of being hostile to vaccines. Um, now, you should only accept vaccines because you know that there's evidence for them. And so it's not like an article of faith, but there's real science behind vaccines and any new vaccine that shows up, you should only choose to accept it if you think it's valid and there's good reason and the, and the, and the costs and benefits to your health are, are you know, fitting. So it, there's no, it, you know, 
uh, injunction, you must accept vaccines, but there's a reality, there's a science behind it. And the worry of things like pandemic is it's, cre- it's sort of softening people up to, whoa, when, when we get a vaccine, maybe there's some ulterior motive here. I'm going to be, so there's a real danger in sort of the power of the arbitrary as it's accepted through uh, times like this. And I think, I think a crisis, this is an important point, I think, Ben, you, you were interested in, a crisis is a time when this sort of thing gets traction that it even doesn't deserve in any time, but it, does, it gets more traction undeservedly in times of crisis. Yeah, and that connects to a point that I wanted to make about part of why I think there's an appeal to this kind of thinking, especially among people who consider themselves to be individualists or anti-authoritarian. Sometimes you see this among certain conservatives, certain libertarians, even people who consider themselves to be uh, fans of Ayn Rand. And there's, there's there's a sense on their part that that there is a lot of unjustified authority that's being asserted in the world, uh, that they're being asked to take things on faith without evidence. Uh, but then there's a kind of leaping out of the fire and into the out of the frying pan and into the fire, where uh, because they're critical of certain of these authorities' demands to believe in dogmas, they they want to now reject everything. Uh, that every authority claims. But this misses the very important distinction between relevant and irrelevant authorities, people who are trustworthy authorities and people who aren't. Uh, The reason why individualism is of value is because the individual rational mind uh, is a central value in life. Uh, The value here isn't it's good to do whatever you want or believe whatever you want just because. The value is reason is an attribute of the individual. But that means that as an individual, what it means to truly be an individualist is to respect reason and to have reasons for one's beliefs. And that means to look for evidence for whichever claim one believes or considers or entertains. And that by no means excludes the importance and the necessity of relying on experts that you have rational reason to believe know what they're talking about. That's a way of respecting your own reason because you have a reason to trust them. And it's a way of respecting the reason of the experts, people you know who've done the cognitive work that it takes to understand sophisticated, specialized areas of knowledge that you yourself aren't in a position to, to master. And so, yeah, it's a very dangerous thing if in response to uh, the things that we are being expected to take on faith, that we decide to say, let's not believe what anybody says about anything. Even when they're experts and they have good reason, you have good reason to think that they know what they're talking about. So we should probably get to some questions. I had one other thought I wanted to share. I'll, I'll try to make it brief. So one of the goals we had for this discussion is to offer sort of both the, an objectivist perspective on how to n- sort of think about this phenomenon of conspiracy uh, thinking. And then I wanted to share one, one perspective that I think flows from that, which is what tip or a suggestion for how to think about this or, or a place to learn more. Uh, and, and it goes back to Ben's point from the beginning that objectivism is a philosophy of reason and that there's a lot packed into that phrase. Uh, and 
part of what objectivism offers is guidance on how to think. And one of the things that it teaches is that it starts with you individually, you, your own mind. You have to be in charge of your own thinking and direct it. And a part of directing your thinking is having an orientation to the, to the world and to the facts and, and being self-conscious about your own thinking. So you're monitoring yourself and thinking, am I accepting this for good reason? What, what were those reasons I accepted some claim? And, and if you can't remember what they are, that's not good. So try to retrace what they were and, and, see, and, and evaluate them. So that you want your knowledge to stand on solid foundations, when it, what, whatever level of knowledge you have, whether it's how to fry an egg or whether it's the, the, the principle that you uh, apply in your job as a scientist, whatever level of knowledge you have, you have to be sensitive to what is the evidence and what is the reason I have this piece of knowledge in my mind. And so one of the things that's super relevant to when you encounter something that reeks of conspiracy thinking, or it's being put to you that way, and you think, wait a minute, so this is raising some flags. One thing to ask yourself is, am I just accepting this because it, it's congenial? It, it, it fits with some of my, the things that I like to, to think about. And I, I have a view that, the, that maybe Bill Gates has too much power or maybe pharmaceutical companies are too rich or I don't like the way they do their pricing. And there's all kinds of motivations people have. I'm not saying all of you in listening have these, but just think about the motivations people have for these things. And congenial can mean also, yeah, I'm angry about what's happening right now. And I need to find something to explain this anger. Like there has to be someone pushing the buttons and making my life harder than it needs to be. There has to be someone victimizing me. And if you find yourself pulled towards a view because of those kinds of considerations, in, rather than because you have evidence. So you're going you're going off the rails, basically, instead of going by the facts. You're going off the rails. You're being pulled because of some emotional, um, sort of overriding emotional uh, pull. And that's a sign that you need to stop and reset and ask yourself, okay, this is all very, this is pulling me in a certain direction. I don't, but is that right? Is it true? And the truth is an important value in life. And be concerned with it as a, as a guiding uh, principle that, okay, that's what really matters in life. Not, okay, well, this would make me feel better versus this is true. And it might be that it's true and you don't like that it's true, but it's true. And that's what matters more than anything. So just to sort of, to summarize this, just to think about monitoring your own thinking when you're engaging with some new knowledge or some claim that someone's put before you, what is it that you find, what is the reason for accepting it? And if there's no factual basis, no, no system of evidence that underlies it, you should not accept it just because it makes you feel good or makes you angry or supports your certain kind of emotional disposition, that is not a good basis. And if you're pulled that way, that's a warning sign to kind of step away and rethink and reset. Cause I think everyone can reset. I don't think you're lost. I think especially with conspiracism, one of the subjectivist factors that push that pulls people in the direction of this kind of thinking is you said, try to be careful that you're accepting these claims just because they serve some uh, uh, because that you like something to be true about them. And I think here, especially part of the reason people like these conspiracy claims is because they want to be able to blame somebody for terrible problems that are actually happening in the world. And if you can blame somebody, uh, then you can conceive of easier action to stop the problem from happening. You just tell them to stop doing it. But 
it's it, these these not every problem in the world is something that is the product of an intentional plan on anybody's part. Sometimes accidents happen. Uh, sometimes people are just incompetent, uh, and that's far more often the case and the cause for these kinds of problems. Now, if somebody wants to ask me a question about why, and there's, there's one question somebody asked that already touches on this, about why it is that there, people can, uh, why there's an illusion that, there, that conspiracies happen in this kind of case. I'll answer that later. But, uh, Elon, should we start to wrap up with, with resources? Yeah, I, so I was going to suggest that, um, so Ben's written a couple articles on New Ideal about cons the sort of conspiracist mindset. So one of them is about um, contrasting Ayn Rand's approach to thinking and knowledge and what a conspiracist approach looks like and how um, to get away from the conspiracist approach. And that, and that one is called An Alternative to Conspiracism's Foolish Illusions, which I recommend for you. Uh, it's showing on the screen now in front of Ben. And the other one is um, taking the case study of the Notre Dame uh, cathedral burning, if you guys remember that from a, a year or two ago, and immediately there was a, um, <laughs> pardon the pun, a firestorm of, of uh, conspiracists thinking that, oh, this must have been an attack by jihadists or Islamists. And uh, Ben takes that apart and he uses this case study to show this is not at all how to think about what happened at Notre Dame. And, and we don't know exactly. I, at the time this article was written, it was not yet established um, sort of the full story. I think we knew enough to discount the conspiracist approach. But so it's a really interesting perspective on uh, a major event that I think was uh, the target of conspiracist thinking. And finally, there is, so we've been talking about an objectivist uh, perspective on knowledge, which um, you know, we use this term, a technical term from objective philosophy, the arbitrary, which is a category different from true or false. And the place to find uh, sort of a, a capsule a summary of that is on the Ayn Rand lexicon, which you can find on our website. There's an entry on the arbitrary, which is excerpted from a lecture course by Dr. Leonard Peikoff. Uh, and if you want to sort of get um, the, his statement on this in sort of more definitive form, go to his book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, which is available in paperback and I think in Kindle too. And there there's this sort of, a, it's that issue is presented in the wider systematic presentation of objectivism's theory of knowledge and then the philosophy itself, which I think is a, a, an incredibly powerful uh, way of understanding uh, different kinds of claims to knowledge. So just a recommendation for that resource. Um, Shall we see, take on a couple of questions? We're, I think we're yeah. coming up on our time, but let's see if we can get a few in. Yeah, so I, I think I want to start with Thomas's question from the Q&A box first. And if you're in Zoom, that is the best place to uh, send questions. Hover over your screen. There's a button that says Q&A. Uh, Thomas says, what do you think about the counter-conspiracists who claim that this particular video was taken down by various platforms because it was supposed to be true and not ready for prime time censored due to a new angle? I'm not sure if I follow every bit of that question, Thomas, but what I do know about is that, yeah, I, I've, I've seen many of the same conspiracists who support the pandemic video in the first place saying, well, look, the fact that they took the video down is just further evidence uh, of the conspiracy. Now that's itself an arbitrary claim. 
uh, because uh, there's, there's, first of all, there's just no reason to think it's true. No evidence is given for it. There's also lots of other reasons why we can expect them to have taken it down. We know that there's a lot of misinformation going on around about this pandemic, and we know that the social media platforms uh, want to take it down. Now, you can, I think, have interesting discussions about whether taking this kind of video down is the appropriate response. Uh, I mean, I certainly think it's uh, within social media companies' right to take down any content they want. It's not censorship. Uh, I think it's a bad idea to take these videos down. I personally think they should leave them up so that people can dissect them and expose them for all the problems that they have, uh, especially when it feeds further conspiracism. But uh, the, the idea that it's evidence itself of, a, of, a, of another conspiracy is patently ridiculous. Um, and I will segue from that question uh, to a broader point that I wanted to make, which is that, I mean, I think part of the reason why these kinds of situations uh, are so ripe for the spread of conspiracism is because what you see happening, especially when the pandemic started, was you see a lot of different state governors and other local governments being very quick to react. And you could interpret this in a way that's suggesting, well, it's some coordinated move because they had some plan uh, in advance. But there's a much better explanation for the uh, coincidental reactions. And it comes from uh, a common cause of many of these govern government officials' actions, which is that they share similar ideas which are ideas that are prevalent in the culture and similar styles of thinking that lots of people in the culture have. And this is one of the things that I talk about in that uh, uh, alternative to conspiracism's foolish delusions article. And it's one of the reasons that Ayn Rand herself was a critic of uh, conspiracism. She said, the things that move our culture are not he secret hidden agendas that happen in back rooms. They're ideas that are out there in public for everyone to see that everybody agrees with. And these are the kinds of things that, uh, these are the kinds of actions you would expect when people act on those ideas. You know, so just as an example with the pandemic, almost nobody took this virus seriously to begin with on either side of the political spectrum. Uh, they, it wasn't in, on their radar screen of concerns. They were too busy worrying about uh, you know, impeachment and about uh, things Trump has done and about uh, uh, global warming, what have you. So all of a sudden this happens, people realize they haven't been paying attention and they panic. They realize they've done nothing, uh, but at the same time they panic with a certain set of philosophical ideas in hand. The go-to solution in our country today, in our world today, is when there's a problem, you solve it with government force. That's because they believe in collectivism rather than individualism. And this is an idea that's widely shared, not just by secret elites, but by all kinds of people in the public, people who vote for the leaders. And so when they, are, when they panic, they go to their reserve philosophic ideas. We use force, we shut things down. And there's also the basic moral framework that is widely shared, which is the morality of altruism, that we have to protect the most vulnerable, even if it means sacrificing the able. And so shut down the entire economy, even, uh, even though it's going to penalize a lot of people who are healthy and who don't face a lot of risk, because we need to protect the weak and the potentially sick. Uh, that's, those are the ideas that explain the seemingly coordinated action. It's, it's not an accident that it happens this way, but it's not because of a conspiracy. 
I'm going to try to take on two questions and because uh, I think I can give brief answers to them. So one is, uh, are we denying in our discussion today that there is some bias in the media which has been documented? I don't think anything in our discussion uh, suggests that we regard the media as uniformly objective or, or, or free of errors. In fact, Ben has talked about the, he has an interesting course you guys can find, uh, tips on how to navigate being an objective consumer of the news. And the premise of that is that the news varies in quality and it always has. And I think it's not a new phenomenon. It might be more pronounced today, but I don't think anything we've said today is, to, is that a, a blanket endorsement of media. I think one has to be objective about the sources one looks at. Uh, then the other, maybe you can chime in on that in a minute, uh, Ben. But the other thing I would say is there's a question as well, which I think is a really interesting question. I wish we had more time. Uh, do we see any correlation between being religious and be, and conspiracism? And I, I mean, I think that I don't think all conspiracist thinking is religious, but I think there's very strong uh, uh, sort of parallels or, or similarities between the kind of thinking that happens in conspiracism and that you see in religion, particularly in their accounts of things. So I think the common, the first obvious common one is they're not grounded in evidence and there's no real concern for that. That's a common feature. But the other one, which I think we, we've touched on in this discussion is, um, well, there's two more. One is sort of the shifting of, okay, well, it's not this, it has to be that. There's, there's some sort of, there's an ulterior motivation for holding on to some belief, regardless of what the evidence is showing you. Um, and so you see that with, you know, I remember talking to someone who was religious, who was a friend of mine. I said, well, how do you, so this person was a creationist. How do you account for dinosaur bones? Oh, and then there's this whole account of dinosaurs and how they came into it. And yet we know there's, there's a whole uh, sort of string of knowledge. So there's that kind of thing. And the final one, just a quick perspective on this, which is in some conspiracist accounts, what you see is that there's some shadowy forces in the background that the, the person disclosing this is sharing like new knowledge. And these forces have seemingly omnipotent power. And they're, they're sort of godlike, but they're not godlike because they're doing harm. So they're more like evil demon, evil genius demons. So maybe they're more satanic. And in fact, you see this borrowing back and forth from religious uh, themes and motifs throughout various religions. And they get pulled in, and this goes to Ben's point about sort of the common value framework that people come to this with. Um, the, the, it, and it's inconsistent because sometimes they're omnipotent, but I know about them and they can't hide everything. So they're not really omnipotent. So they're not that good at conspiracies because it's, this person claims to have exposed it. So it's contradictory. Uh, it's not based on evidence. It's rooted in kind of emotion-driven emotion uh, ideas and uh, there's definitely, this is a fascinating topic. We should, maybe should try to find, uh, maybe some of you are interested to write about this uh, for the journal, but I think there's a lot of overlap here between religious thinking, the mindset of religious thing and conspiracism. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I mean, you, it's, it's even, there are even better parallels than that. I mean, some of the arguments that are given for the existence of God are the exact same kind of arguments from ignorance that they give for the existence of conspiracies. There's something complicated in reality that we don't understand. We don't understand how the human eye evolved. Therefore, it must have been a conspiracy by a supernatural power behind the scenes to bring all these pieces together. It's, it's the exact same kind of uh, reasoning. Uh, as to the, the question about the media, yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you said. The, there is no source in the media today which is a consistent 
objective uh, source of reporting. There are some, I think, that are less bad than others. I don't want to go into the details of that now, but I mean, there's been biased reporting all over the place uh, in this pandemic. Yes, there's been uh, really non-objective reporting among uh, so-called conservative news sources about uh, hydroxychloroquine and about uh, disinfect use of disinfectant and so forth. But you've also had really irresponsible, I think, reporting from uh, left liberal leading sources talking about the necessity of lockdowns and the economic evidence that uh, that uh, that these will have no impact i've i've written several articles on this topic so and you know taking to task uh, the new york times and the washington post for i think their hysterical reporting uh, on this kind of thing so nobody's exempt from blame here and uh, mary Aline in in the q and a is uh, reminding me that there's a a course uh, that uh, both Greg and I uh, participated in that you can view on Ayn Rand campus, uh, either on the web or on our app. It's called Objective Thinking. Uh, Greg has a lecture on being an objective consumer of science. I have a lecture on being objective about your consumption of the news. These are both very relevant for what we're talking about today. I've just put the link to that into the Zoom chat if people are interested in taking a further look. So, uh, Elon, should we start to wrap things up? Yeah, I just thank everyone for joining us today. I hope you can make it next time. I think Ben, uh, I'll give a plug for your next. Uh, on, so on Wednesday, Ben's going to interview a psychologist, Dr. Gina Gorlin, on sort of thinking about the role of self-esteem in the time of the lockdowns and the pandemic. I think there's a lot of interesting issues to explore there. Uh, so you can join us then uh, on uh, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific. Uh, here at the same time, uh, same time, Wednesday, uh, uh, same place. All right. Thanks, Elon. And I'll just uh, wrap up with a few things. Uh, first of all, if you like New Ideal Live, if you like what you saw today, please consider following us on YouTube. Just be sure to hit that red subscribe button. And if you want to get notifications for whenever we post new videos or go live, be sure to click on that little bell icon right next to it. Otherwise, as Elon mentioned, uh, New Ideal Live happens Mondays and Wednesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, I'll be back this coming Wednesday, as he mentioned, to interview Gina Gorlin on uh, psychological aspects of dealing with today's crisis. I hope to see many of you there. Thanks very much for being a great audience. Talk to you later. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, Leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.